You are listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5 for one last time. One last time, not forever. I'm sure we'll come back to 1 John at some point, but uh, this is, believe it or not, the last passage of 1 John in the letter. We began our first series in 1 John. Remember, we've done two series throughout this uh, great little book of the Bible. Uh, The first one called Under Construction, we started all the way back in January. January 29th is when we began this journey through this letter. And for 17 weeks, including this morning, we have gone verse by verse through every word of this incredible letter from the Apostle John. And that doesn't include like special standalone Sundays we've had. That doesn't include Palm Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. 17 weeks in 1 John, and this morning we complete it. One of the reasons I love this letter is that it brings us back to the basics of the faith. Throughout this letter, John has unfolded several aspects of the faith that we, we would consider foundational, things that you really need to know in order to live out your faith in an effective, right manner. We've talked about things like the confession of sin, the forgiveness of sin in Christ, the assurance of salvation that we have in Christ, the dangers of the world and how it will lure you away if you do not keep your eyes focused on Jesus and how sometimes people in the church are lured away and and we talked about how their departure from the faith actually reveals they were never of the faith to begin with. We talked about the deceptive teachings that sometimes infiltrate the church and how we need to be aware of these teachings and we need to be on guard against them. And we focus specifically on what actual godly love is when we began that second series, This Is Love, the, the current series that we're in. We talked about what, what godly love looks like, what it doesn't look like, and the confidence that we can have as children of God as we come to him in this relationship that has been forged through the blood of Jesus. We talked about how to test the spirits, the uh, various voices, the teachers and preachers of the Bible that you listen to on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis, including myself, how to test them to evaluate what they're saying to see if they are coming from the spirit of God or from a demonic spirit. We talked about the importance of choosing love over fear or hate. Last week we talked about the three witnesses, the water, the blood, the spirit, and these are all things in 1 John that really point us to Jesus. We've talked a lot about Jesus in this message or this series. 1 John is full of things that if you are a younger believer in Christ, you need to know this stuff. And if you're a more mature believer in Christ, you need to be reminded of this stuff. It's essential things that we need to be reminded of on a regular basis. And so I believe it's fitting this morning that we end our time with yet another foundational aspect of the faith, one that is incredibly important to the day-to-day life of a believer, and that is the practice of prayer, the practice of prayer. So much of what John has been saying throughout this letter serves as a kind of foundation for the practice of prayer, if you want to think of it that way. In other words, when we ask questions like, why can we pray to God? Why is that a possibility for us? Why does God hear us when we pray and respond? He does so because we belong to him. 
He is our father. We are his children. We've been loved, elected, forgiven, adopted, covered by the blood of Jesus, filled with his spirit, brought into the family of God. And now, because of this relationship that John has been developing throughout the course of this letter, we are able to come to him and ask him things with confidence. Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We know that he hears us when we cry out. We can have confidence in this relationship that we have with him. Now, before we really jump into the text, I want you to notice a couple of things just from the outset. Number one is uh, in verse 13. Notice that he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John has this great habit, and it is a great habit, I think, especially for those of us who study the Scripture, because it makes our lives a little bit easier. John has this habit of telling you why he wrote what he wrote. He gives you his purpose statement. You know, it's not even left up to guessing. You, he's just going to tell you, this is why I wrote this letter. He does this in his gospel account as well. Uh, the, the gospel according to John chapter 20, verse 31. It says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When you read the gospel according to John, his purpose for writing that gospel to you is that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you would have life in his name. And he gives us his purpose for 1 John as well. Why does he write this letter? Why did he put pen to paper, carried by the Holy Spirit, that you may know that you have eternal life? That you can be confident in your faith in Christ, that you can have assurance of salvation, that you know for sure that you belong to God the Father through the blood of the Son carried by the Spirit. And then he tells us in verse 14 what this confidence means for us practically on a day-to-day basis. Verse 14, he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. John is saying one of the benefits of having confidence in your salvation is that you can ask God anything according to his will and he will hear you. So get this, prayer in the Christian context, it's not simply reciting words, right? It's not repeating words. Uh, It's not reading words, although I do believe that the things like the Book of Common Prayer and and, and things of the Valley of Vision, some of you may be familiar with those things, are are helpful. And in times when I lack the words to pray, uh, resources like that help me pray in my moments of, of need. But in the Christian context, prayer is not simply reciting something. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling you get when you're alone with your thoughts with God. Prayer is literally asking God for something. John uses the term ask in verse 14. It's the Greek term aiteo. It's a word that means to ask or to request with confidence. It almost almost could be translated as a demand, but not in an arrogant or a haughty manner. It's it's a request that's anchored in a confidence that it's going to be heard and answered. So understand that there are a lot of religious traditions in the world, right, that include prayer. Prayer is a practice that, like, dominates much of the world across several different religious traditions. But make no mistake about it, prayer in the Christian context is different. It's not the same practice. Prayer in the Christian context is literally asking God for something with the confident expectation that God will hear you and respond to you because you are his child and he is your father. So I've titled the message this morning, The Ask not the prayer, because I think the prayer, the term prayer is sort of a a loaded term. It it may mean things to you that the Bible doesn't necessarily mean. I want to think of this in terms of asking 
the ask. John is going to instruct us not only how we are to ask God for things, but why we should ask him for things in the first place. In other words, why should we pray? And how do we do it? Are we ready? Well, we're going to do it whether you're ready or not, so hopefully you stay with us. Let's start with how we ask. How we ask. Good verses 14 and 15. John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So in these two verses, John gives us two ways we are to ask God for whatever it is that we are requesting of him. Two things that we need to include in the how of our prayer. In other words, he's saying, when you pray to God, make sure you do it in this way. First, and most importantly, I believe, we ask according to his will. We ask according to his will. This is singularly the most important detail, I believe, for prayer. When it comes to prayer, we have to ask according to God's will, not our own will. And this practice of aligning our prayers with his will is consistent throughout the message of scripture, especially in the New Testament. Don't take my word for it. Let's look to the scripture for at least a couple of examples. I think the best place to begin when we're thinking about how we should pray, we should look no further than first the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. So, I mean, I think this is a very good first base to go to when we're thinking about how to pray. And I'm just, it's a personal thing for me. I always feel a little bit weird quoting a part of the Lord's Prayer. I kind of feel like it's one of those things that needs to be said together. And so let's say it together. Matthew 5, verses 9 through 13. It's on the screen if you don't have it memorized. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And just for funsies, if you memorized it, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. That last part is not in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. It probably wasn't a part of the prayer, hate to burst your bubble, but it's really nice and so we can say it. There's nothing unbiblical about it. Notice what is in the prayer for certain. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the prayer. Not my will, not my way, not my plan, not my kingdom, your will, your way, your plan, your kingdom. It's according to God's will. Let's look at one more. Just again, uh, another prayer message of, of Jesus. John chapter 15, verse seven. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Almost sounds like genie Jesus, doesn't it? There's nothing explicit in this about God's will, is there? It almost sounds like your will. Ask whatever you wish and God will grant it. But notice what the prerequisite is. You must abide in Christ or remain. There's that Greek term minnow. We've talked about it a dozen times throughout this series. It's one of the verbs that John loves to use a lot. You must abide in Christ, and what specifically is to abide in you? The words of Christ. The idea here is that if you're full of Christ's words, if you are saturated in Scripture, if you are being led by the Spirit, you're going to ask what you are full of. In other words, to say it plainly, 
Let me give you a truth. It's extremely difficult to ask for stupid things when you're filled with the words of Christ. Let me just put it at a, a base level for us to understand. It's going to be very difficult for you to ask for things out of your flesh if you are full of the words of Christ and you remain in him. Now, if you're not in him and the words of Christ are not in you, you're going to ask for some bogus things, right? But if you are in him and his words are in you and you are praying in those moments, it stands to reason you are going to pray out of what you are full of. This is what John is getting at in verse 14. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Why? Because God is only interested in his will. He's God. His will is better than your will or my will. Now let me ask this question, million dollar question. What is God's will? What is God's will? Now I will submit to you if I could answer that in totality. Um, I don't know what that would mean. It would mean something. I can't though. I, I cannot answer that in totality. I can answer it in part because the scripture answers it in part. Let's look to the scripture in, in specific explicit places where scripture tells us, at least in part, what the will of God is. Here's the first thing that the will of God is for you, that you would give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That regardless of the circumstance you face, whether happy or sad, good or bad, joyful or not joyful, that you would be grateful in it. Now, why is that possible for a Christian? Because no matter what circumstance you face, you've been bought by the blood of Jesus. You've been loved with grace and mercy. And that alone is enough to be full of thanksgiving. Amen? That's part of God's will for you. That no matter what you face... Some of you have a difficult time in Father's Day. I do too. My dad's in prison, right? Father's Day is not a happy day for me, typically. It's been a redeemed day because I have children of my own now. But, but it's a difficult day for some of you. It's a difficult circumstance. And what, what the will of God is for you in part is to be grateful even in spite of those circumstances. Number two, that your good works would silence foolish people. I love this one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There are a lot of foolish people in the world. A lot of people are going to be critical of your faith and the way that you live your life and orient your life around God's law, God's scripture. And, and what the, 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 the basis of this is that the will of God for you is that as you live in obedience to what the scriptures say, your actions, your life will be very difficult to criticize, you will silence the ignorance of foolish people in your life. Number three, that you would be sanctified, that you would become more like Jesus. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Number four, that you would serve God, not men that you would operate, that you would live your life, that you would do the work of whatever God has put before you, whether that's your actual job or ministry or calling or whatever it is, that you would do these things for an audience of one, for him and for no one else, not for the applause of men, not for the acknowledgement, not for the praises, but for him and him alone. Ephesians chapter six, verse six. I could go on, but this is what it means practically. When you struggle with any of these things, you pray for God for strength for those things, he will hear, he will respond. You can have confidence in that because it's his will. 
So for example, again, let's get very practical. If you're facing a difficult circumstance, uh, you can pray that God would birth in you gratitude, that you would be thankful despite the circumstances that you face. I have had, if I could just be transparent, this week been praying this prayer. There's a particular circumstance that I face. It's rather annoying, and I've had to check my heart this week a lot, and I was reminded as I came to this passage, and ever since then, I've been praying, Lord, let me be grateful. Let me be grateful despite this one circumstance. I can pray for that. You can pray for that because you can pray according to God's will and he will hear. You, will, you, you can pray that God would shape you into the image of his son, that he would sanctify you because that's his will for you. We can ask God anything, but we always must come back and ask for his will. You've heard me say this before. I'll say it again. Prayer is not meant to change God's will. It's meant to change mine. Prayer is not meant to conform God's will to my desires. It's to conform my desires to God's will. It's a formative practice whereby I'm asking God, according to his will, to do in me that which he desires. Now, are those the verses that explain the totality of God's will? No, they're they're in part, right? In other words, there is more to God's will, certainly, that the scripture doesn't speak specifically to. And so then the question becomes, can you pray for things that are not explicitly mentioned in scripture as God's will? And I would say, I I believe you can. As a child of God, if God is your father, uh, you can come to him, you can ask him anything. But you've gotta understand that if you ask him from a place of your power and your will, unless that happens to also align with his power and his will, which if we're being honest, probably doesn't, then understand that God is not likely to respond in the way that you desire him to. So for me personally, sometimes what that means is instead of praying for whatever it is that I want specifically, I'll just ask for God's will to be done. So if there's something that I'm like, man, I really, you know, I I desire this or I want this to go this way, I typically will just say, Lord, your will, not mine. Whatever that looks like, lead me through it. And, And honestly, this is the model of Jesus. This is the model of Jesus. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he is arrested, beaten, and crucified, he's with his disciples in the garden. They're praying, Mark chapter 14, verses 34 through 36. It says, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Of course, they don't watch. They fall asleep, lousy disciples. But then verse 35, it says, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, understand this, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's his prayer. That's his desire. But then look what he says at the end. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I think this is a great model for prayer. To come to God, especially in moments of angst, and to cast your cares upon him, as the scripture says, to, to, to make known to him your desires and then to follow that up firmly with yet not what I will but what you will. We ask according to the will of God. That's the first thing. The second thing, we ask with confidence. That's what John is, is really driving home here. That's the thrust of verse 15. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know, we can have certainty that we have the request that we have asked of him. We know that if we ask for something that aligns with his will, we will get it. God will, in other words, make you grateful in moments of difficulty because that's his will for you. He will shape you and and form you into the image of his son. That's his will for you. 
That's a dangerous prayer to pray, I'm going to be honest with you. Lord, make me like Jesus. Lord, make me like the one who was beaten and crucified. Make me like the suffering servant. That's through praying when you, when you pray that. You should pray that. It's the will of God. But, but I'm just going to tell you up front, it, the result of that prayer might look a little difficult. Probably will look pretty difficult. But it will accomplish his will to make you more like his son. We know that when we ask according to his will, he will hear and he will answer. We ask according to his will and we do it confidently. That's the how. Let's talk about the why. Why do we ask? Why do we ask? Verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Just... Take note of that verse for a minute. There's a sin that doesn't lead to death. Pray for those people. There's a sin that leads to death. Don't worry about praying for them. Not my words, John's. Verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So the first reason for why we should pray according to this passage is for protection from sin. I want you to think through one of the major themes that has come up over and over almost every week throughout every passage that we've looked at through this great little letter. John has continued to hammer over and over and over again the reality or the incompatibility of sin in the Christian life. It is incomprehensible for John for a Christian to live in unrepentant habitual sin. They're they're incompatible with one another. In fact, John even said, remember, we talked about this a moment ago and and several weeks ago, there are those who are in the church who are living in habitual, unrepentant sin, and John is like, they're not even Christians. They went away so that you would know for certain they were never of us. They are deceivers, and they have themselves been deceived. Sin is incompatible with the Christian life, but it's also inevitable. Inevitable. And so this is what I think John is doing. John is parsing out the difference between the Christian who will sin that does not lead to death because he will be led through or she will be led through repentance and confession of sin and enjoy forgiveness from that sin, whereas the non-Christian, when they sin, are not even aware of it most of the time, much less will be willing to confess and repent, thus it leads to death. Sins that Christians commit do not lead to death. And notice that when someone does this, when a Christian, a brother or sister falls into sin, gives into temptation, whatever it is, we should ask God, John says, and God will give him life. In other words, John is describing here intercessory prayer. Prayer on behalf of someone else that God would bring them through his mercy to repentance. And why is repentance important? He told us that in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise why we are to pray for others. We pray that God would lead them to a point of repentance, that they would confess their sin, and that they would continue to enjoy their forgiveness that's been secured for them by the blood of Jesus. Listen, we have a tendency in evangelicalism, and especially in the South, we're the worst about it in the South, to just put all of the blame, basically, for all of our problems at the feet of the enemy, right? It's just the devil's fault. I, growing up, my, my grandmother, God bless her, was a uh, hardcore fundamentalist Baptist, and, and I remember, like, every problem that came up in our family, she'd be like, you know, that old devil's trying to get us again. There's always that old devil, now, I, listen, I believe we face a real enemy. 
a real enemy. I do not take that lightly at all. I believe spiritual warfare is real. I believe he is out to try and destroy the elect if possible. It's what the scripture says. But I think if you were to evaluate your own problems in your life, you would find out more often than not that you need protection not from the enemy, but from your own dumb devices. There's a great AA saying, every morning I wake up and I look the enemy dead in the eye and then I shave him. That'll preach. That'll preach. I remember, it's been probably 15 years ago, Jessica and I at the time were in the, the young adult life group at this church. And at, at this point in, in our lives, this life group was meeting in a house in South Arlington. And it was later in the evening. And I remember we were, we were at, it was, it was Jill in Orlando's house. And we were there uh, waiting for everybody to show up. And, and there was another young girl, a little younger than us, in the, co- the college ministry that, that showed up. And she was real frantic and kind of out of breath. And she came in and she goes, you are never going to believe what just happened to me. And she sat down and began telling us this story about how right before life group, she decided to run a quick personal errand at the mall, the Parks Mall in Arlington. And, and she was there by herself. It was getting a little bit later. Mall was getting ready to close. She ran in to do whatever it was that she was there to do. And as she was walking across the mall back to where she came in at to leave, she felt this sort of weird sense that there was a guy behind her that was following her. She just noticed that he was, he was there. He seemed to be going the same direction. She didn't think too much of it at first. You know, I mean, it's a mall. Everyone has to go to some exit. And the, the, the likelihood of them parking in the same parking lot, pretty high. But as she got closer to the exit, he was still there. And it seemed like he was actually kind of gaining ground on her a little bit. Well, she gets to the exit and she walks out and it immediately occurs to her, I've parked at the very back of the parking lot. And if this guy is following me, there's not going to be anyone back there to hear me cry out for help. And so she picks up her pace a little bit. And sure enough, as she's kind of looking over her shoulder, he comes out the exit door and he is still behind her, walking at a pace. So now she's nervous. And she begins digging in her purse, looking for her keys, for her key fob. And then she remembers, my key fob has been running out of batteries. It doesn't always work. So she's walking and she's pressing the key fob, you know, as much as she can. And she's looking at her car in the distance. She can see it. Nothing's happening. It's not working. And she's like, oh, you know, praying, please, Lord, let this car unlock so I can get to my car. And this guy is even closer now. And she's pressing it. Finally, as she gets 10 feet from the car, the lights blink It's unlocked, and she runs, scurries over, opens the door, jumps in the car, shuts it, locks it, begins looking for her keys, and the guy comes up to her window. And he begins banging on the window. And she is frantically trying to get her keys out of her purse, and he's banging on the window, and she looks up at him, and he goes, why are you in my car? She begins to look around, notices a pack of cigarettes on the seat. She doesn't smoke. Uh, Her little thing hanging from her is not there. And she realizes, we drive the same car. And the reason it went off is because he unlocked it because he was getting to his car. Imagine his perspective. I mean, he unlocks his car and she takes off running and jumps in it. He ended up being a very nice guy and understood the mix-up. But understand, she had a problem. Who was the problem? She was. John is saying one of the reasons you should pray is to ask God to protect you from you, from your own sin. Now, 
That is not to say that we don't have an enemy, and that's where he goes next. Look at verses 18. We need protection from the enemy as well. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. There is that idea of there's no habitual sin. It doesn't mean you're not gonna struggle, but it means that you're not gonna continue living in this sin that you know is wrong just like it's not wrong. You have a conscience. The, The Spirit's gonna convict you. But he who has been born of God, he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, this is a continuation of the last two verses, so understand this, because the succession of thought is very important as John builds his case. When a brother or sister makes the conscious decision to sin, we are to pray for them for protection against that sin, that God would lead them into repentance, but also we are to pray for protection for them while they are compromised in the sin from the enemy. So when you sin, you become, understand this, fertile ground for the enemy to whisper temptation and condemnation in your ears. So we pray for God to protect us against our own sin, but also to protect us when we're compromised in our sin from Satan. And then John tells us why Satan is a threat. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is present tense. This is an ongoing action. The world, cosmos allos, the entire world is literally laying down in the power of the evil one. You have been born of God, he says. You rest in the power of God, but the world you live in does not. Now, the blood of Jesus is superior. And so this is why we pray. This is not a defeatist mindset. You pray that God would bring protection to you, and he says he will. That's what he's saying here. So when you sin, understand this, the enemy sees the opportunity to try to further destroy you. So we pray not only for the protection that we wouldn't destroy ourselves, but that we wouldn't be further destroyed while we're compromised. And then last, he ends the letter with a little note on idolatry. Very strange way to end an entire letter until you begin to really think about what John is getting at here. Look at verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. And just in case you doubted at any point throughout this letter that Jesus is divine, that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, he says it plainly here. He is the true God and eternal life. And then look at verse 21. Little children, this is what he ends with. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. In other words, the whole basis of this letter has been returning to the basics of the faith, to be captivated, to put our focus and our attention on Jesus, the true God and the eternal life. And so don't look for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for help, or for anything else in anything else except for Jesus, the true God, the eternal life. Keep your eyes on Christ. I can't think of a better way to end a letter. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That is 1 John. We've studied verse by verse through it, and it's been an incredible pleasure to walk through this verse by verse with you. Uh, We've got some I think very fun things planned in the next few weeks, a couple standalones, some different things that we're gonna be doing. We have a uh, end of summer, small, probably four or five week sermon series that we're planning right now that is tentatively called the ultimate road trip. Um, 
where we're going to be talking about Paul's missionary journeys throughout the book of Acts. And then in the fall, I am very excited, probably September, uh, to begin a new verse-by-verse study through the gospel according to Mark. Uh, We're going to be studying through Mark's gospel. It is the first of the four gospels written chronologically. Uh, It's the earliest gospel. And uh, it was likely written at the dictation of Peter. Mark was not one of the original disciples, but he was discipled by Peter. And history tells us that Mark uh, was actually referred to as the memoirs of Peter. Uh, In conjunction with that, we're going to be making available to you for $5. If you don't have the $5, if if, if money is tight, we can just gift it to you. Uh, But we do try to recoup some of the cost. An ESV, Gospel According to Mark, Journal Bible. Uh, My hope is that every one of you will get one of these. This is the translation that I'll be preaching out of. And the great thing about this is that when you look at it, one side is the text and the other is for notes. And so if... um if, if you want to write, if the Spirit brings something to your mind to write down uh, to help you remember whatever it is that that was, then this is a great tool, and you can use this throughout the entire series. We're going to go through every word of this. And so uh, these will be available in September right before the series begins. Uh, so don't come ask next week in the CLC if you can buy one. You can't, all right? I'm just cutting it off before it begins because I know you. I know what you're going to do. Some of you are... You're achievers. I get it. It's good. Uh, September, that's where that's going to happen. We will see you next week, and happy Father's Day to all you dads.